Today we go back in time to a very special episode with a very special man. My guest is John O'Donoghue, a poet, philosopher, former priest, and a doctor of philosophical theology. John left his mortal coil 15 years ago, but as his brother Pat wrote about him, his life cannot be encompassed within the one act of birth, life, and death. He was not a finite act that existed and is now lost forevermore. It is the absolute truth and our conversation of his book, Beauty, the Invisible Embrace, invites us to attain new heights of passion and creativity. Beauty is a gentle but urgent call to awaken our own relationship with the awe and wonder that surrounds us. John makes us aware of the eternal grace and generosity often located between the lines of everyday life. As always, a very special thanks to my patrons who make this podcast possible. If you enjoy listening, please subscribe and visit my website, barrykibrick.com, to become a patron or just to get in touch with me. I always appreciate hearing from you and will always answer all your emails. Thank you so very much for joining us. I know we've tried to schedule you earlier and we, we had problems and, and I'm so grateful that you have finally been able to grace our stage. I'm delighted to be here, Barry. Oh, it's my pleasure. And, I, and this is the first time I'm going to really get a chance to start the show with almost the title of my own show. My show is Between the Lines and I couldn't help but when I read this book over and over, the word between came up. Between the web of betweenness, between the world of between, betweenness needs to be invoked. Betweenness is a very interesting concept that this book is about. All those things that lie between the things we are not so obviously aware of. Absolutely. That's, as a matter of fact, that's the heart of the book. I live in Connemara in the west of Ireland, which is an incredibly beautiful but bleak landscape. I often think that if God had phoned up Samuel Beckett and said, I invite you to invent your own landscape, that he would have invented Connemara. There's these dark mountains that preside over the whole landscape. And some days you get up and the fog has come down and the summit of the mountain has disappeared and the stem of the mountain is there. And you can't see the summit with the eye, even though you know it's there. And I always think that's a wonderful metaphor for the imagination, that there are huge adjacencies and presences around every life that we can't see with the eye, but that we can viscerally and vitally connect with, with the imagination. And I think that's the whole region, that threshold of betweenness, because there's a threshold that runs through everything, like between light and dark, between masculine and feminine, divine and human, chaos and order. And the magic of the imagination, and that's where beauty emerges from, is the navigation and the excavation of that threshold of betweenness. You know, when I started the show, I was, I, I was joking before I said I, I don't travel much, but when I was younger, I went to Europe and I was on a train and I was with a musician. And I'll never forget, he was a classical pianist. And I said, you know, I have questioned, what would make you different than a Vladimir Horowitz or someone like that? They, you're playing the same music, it's classical music. And he said to me, it's what's between the notes. And you, in fact, have in your book, also with music, which you feel so strongly about. And again, it's what's between those notes, those things that 
that je ne sais quoi that we don't really can't grab a hold of, but yet it is what really moves us. Absolutely. I mean, I think that music is the language. Like, I mean, I think it's the dream of silence is music. Well, you say even, in fact, I think if we left nothing in the book, you say, but our music. That's right. I think we've brought a lot of difficult gifts to the world, a lot of destruction. But the most beautiful gift we've brought is the gift of music. And human music, the creation of works like Wagner, Beethoven, Mozart, classical music, it's just absolutely amazing because it's a distilled feeling that brings you into another zone altogether. And when you enter that zone, your experience of time is absolutely altered. I have a suspicion myself that uh, the real magic about time is the notion of simultaneity, that in some zone, all time is present together, past time, future time, and present time. And I think it's out of that terrain that music comes. And music can reach you and blow your heart wide open in a way that human encounter, that words, and that lots of other engagements can't. And it's, I mean, it's the dream of writing. T.S. Eliot said that um, poetry, like music, should communicate before it's understood. And I always think that's what really good language is about. Language that's weighted and has psychic depth is a language that's shadowed by silence. Meister Eckhart, the 13th century mystic, had a lovely phrase. He said that everything that is, is under the umbra nihili, the shadow of nothingness. And I think that's the magic threshold that music excavates. And it seems to also hit you. I had Ray Manzarek, who was the co-founder of The Doors, a famous rock group in America and probably familiar with in Ireland as well. And he said that it literally is a vibration. Mm-hmm. that hits you here and well, President Reagan passed away and I was driving in the car and just listening to the music being played at the funeral and your emotion is swept away with words, not the words, the music. Absolutely. You even hear the chords of Oh, uh, oh Beautiful or mm-hmm. uh, Glory, Glory, Hallelujah mm-hmm. or Amazing Grace mm-hmm. and it just goes through you and you feel things that you would not feel with any other expressive. Absolutely. But I I think that uh, there's a friend of mine, Luca Bloom, who's a very known, well-known Irish songwriter. And he says that he believes that it's physically impossible for the human body to resist a melody. And I think that too. And I think that's the magic of beauty. A woman that I knew and admired immensely was Kathleen Rain, the famous English poet. And in an amazing essay on the beautiful that she wrote in the 1960s, she said the following. It's just a little quotation, but it's magic. Strangest of all is the ease with which the vision is lost. Consciousness contracts. We forget over and over again until recollection is stirred by some icon of that beauty. Then we remember and wonder why we ever forgot. Beauty. I'd like to clear this up with the audience because when I was telling everybody I have a book on beauty, the first thing everyone's thinking, oh, it's going to be a makeover show or it's going to be right. Everyone is thinking physical beauty. That's right. There is, I don't want to say there's nothing about physical beauty because that too would be a lie. There is uh, an essence of physical beauty that, that plays throughout here in art. We'll talk about that in other things in landscape as as the, the world around us. But this beauty, in fact, you do something and I guess we'll, we'll have to chat about this. You capitalize when you say the beautiful. You capitalize beautiful 
as one would capitalize the G in God. I do, because I believe that it's that sublime kind of presence. I believe that the experience of the beautiful is like a homecoming to something in us that always knew it. And I agree with you, like, it's a, it's a common confusion today that beauty is reduced to glamour. And glamour is external image stuff. And it has to do with the kind of L'Oreal brigade because you're worth it. And it reminds me of a wonderful two sentences used by Dennis Donahue, the Irish literary critic, when he was trying to illustrate two lines of poetry that were the product of fancy, not imagination. And he said, the first effect these two lines have is the only effect they'll ever have. No amount of pondering will make them glow. And I think that's what glamour and that kind of image beauty is about. It's a once-off flicker and there's no substance or soul behind it. Whereas I think real beauty, true beauty, is a slower presence. It's more subtle. It's more oblique. It invites you to come towards it. And it's also not anything that can be controlled by the ego or come into possession of the image. It's after all, when I was writing this book, Barry, I was researching it for about three and a half years. And I read about 97 or eight books in the, before I started to write the text. And what struck me was from Plato up along to the present day that the greatest minds have realized that life without the experience of the beautiful would be unbearable. And that beauty isn't either a luxury concept. I mean, there are many people on the front lines as we're speaking tonight who are holding the line of humaneness in prisons, hospitals, mental asylums, refugee camps and war zones who are able to survive months of horror because of maybe one glimpse of the beautiful. It's an incredible renewal and homecoming. You use these words, the most profound events of our lives take place in those fleeting moments. And prior to that, you talk about Vermeer and the girl with the pearl That's earring. Right. And you talk about how what he was able to do is capture those little moments, exactly. those little things that you find yeah. and see the beauty in it. And I couldn't help but as you were saying, the prisons, the hospital wards, the front lines of battle, it's those fleeting moments between it that keeps us human. Absolutely. And I mean, uh, to give an instance that I have in the book, I remember walking in from university in my fifth year there and coming into the kitchen at home and my father was sitting down facing the fire and he turned, uh, he stood up and turned around to welcome me. And when I looked into his eyes, I saw that something had changed. Uh, that some new silence had invaded his presence and that somewhere, whether it was out in the mountains or around the fields, that he had looked and seen a door opening towards him somewhere. And in that second of a gaze, I knew that he was going to die. And three weeks later, he was actually dead. He had got ill and died. And it was all in the fleeting glimpse. And I think that, you know, we talk so much about relationships, about interaction, engagement, all the rest of it. Sometimes the most subtle and subversive and true psychological reading is in the small moments of the glimpse, the gaze, the whisper, the suggestion. Oh, John, I'm glad we waited to have you here. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny you say that you brought up those mountains and again, this, this depth, because in your words, it's in these parched terrains where these new wells are to be discovered. And it seems that that's, what we get when we delve down beneath the layer after layer after layer. Sometimes what may be out there may not appear to behold this. And again, we, we talk about beauty. It is not just a physical aspect, no. but this, this depth of passion, of sensitivity, 
of compassion. It is something, though, that we have to, as Socrates said, we must live an examined life to be able to see it because we have to do this digging. That's right, absolutely, this kind of excavation. One of my favorite sentences from antiquity is the sentence of Plato in the Symposium, which is the great classical document on beauty. And Plato says in the Symposium that the greatest privilege of a human being is to be midwife to the birth of the soul in another person. And I think that says absolutely everything. In, in America, I find, in contrast to Ireland, in Ireland, because of our colonial background, we go round and round a thing. And you could know a person for 20 years and you might be much further on with them. I discovered when I came here first that if you put too much sincerity into the question, how are you? You could unleash a biography in seconds. And I think that, <laughs> I think that here, one of the things that happens actually, which is an interesting point in relation to what you're saying, is that you have a reduction of identity to biography. And identity is not biography. Biography is what happens to you. And even if things happen to you for a thousand years, they still wouldn't excavate all that's in you. And a sentence I love from Meister Eckhart, the 13th century mystic is, and I think it's a sentence that's really important to say in a, an interview about beauty. He says, there's a place in the soul that neither time nor flesh nor no created thing can ever touch. That means that there's a place in you that nobody's ever got to that nobody's ever damaged or diminished, where there is a beautiful tranquility and serenity and sureness in you. And I think the intention of the aesthetic and the spiritual and the creative is to help us to come into that sanctuary as frequently as we can. And everyone has it. That's the magic of it. That magic seems to parallel another word that you seem to lace throughout the book, and that is grace. And grace is a word we don't hear as often as one would think. And yet, your book is laced with the word grace, graciousness, mm -hmm. gratefulness. Reverence. It's reverence. Mm -hmm. That's another word that you mention in the book that you, in, in fact, in the book you say you don't hear of reverence that much. Right. Explain the way grace and reverence relates to the way you are looking at beauty and as your subtitle goes, that beautiful embrace. I think that there is a huge arrogance in contemporary culture. I think that there is a kind of belief that we can blunder into and beyond any frontier with no preparation, no permission, and no recognition of what might await us. I think that one of the things that we have lost in modern life is a sense of what I'd call the reverence of approach. Because some of the most secret things are the most sacred things. And if you don't approach with reverence, they will decide not to approach you. And I think reverence is a profound sense of respect, expectation, and preparation. And I think if you have that kind of attitude, that you'll be amazed at what will turn up at the door of your life. There's an American poet that I love, actually. I had the honor of having dinner with his wife and daughter up at Friends of Mine's Noel, who's a poet in Oregon, uh, early, last year, and that was Bill Stafford. And in his book, Crossing Unmarked Snow, Bill said the following four sentences around which one could live a very honorable life. And they are, to me, the epitome of what a spirituality of grace would be about. He said, the things you do not have to say make you rich. Saying the things you do not have to say weakens your talk. Hearing the things you do not need to hear dulls your hearing. And the things you know before you hear them those are you, and this is the reason you're in the world. So grace has that 
wonderful spontaneity that blesses and dignifies the human word, the human thought, and above all, the human gesture. Well, right before I was going to read those exact <laughs> words, it's kind of funny because We're I, had in starred, the zone. I had starred that the words create the bridges between us. Mm -hmm. And then you give that, that That's little right. poem in the book. It That's is, right. and, and again, we're talking, we're on a show like this. So those words, and once again, the words not spoken. That's right. Are the unsaid, the unsaid. power, the, gra the grace, the hidden density of grace that uh, pervades us through the power of the unsaid. Now, you were a priest That's right. for 19 years. And as I said, we, we are looking at the word beauty as we would look at the word God. And in it, and you kind of just hinted at something when you said before about the search that this fellow was on. And in the chapter where you finally, and it's at the very end, by the way, where you say God is beauty. It builds up towards it. Yeah. You say these words that rather than trying to set out in search of God, maybe the secret is to let him find you. I think that's the magic. And in the chapter preceding it, I have a whole thing on death and the beauty of death, which is exactly about that. And I think that, uh, that, uh, Death is an amazing doorway into the eternal. I mean, it always strikes me, people, and I'm one of the great privileges of priesthood, which I miss sorely still, is helping people to die. I think the deathbed isn't so much a deathbed as a birthbed, and I've seen amazing transformations happening there. But it always struck me about death, that death doesn't come at the end of life, but it comes out of the womb with us at the beginning, and it's the secret companion on all our journeys. And uh, Wittgenstein's great line, you know, that death is not an event in your life always strikes me as magical. And I often, the, the most consoling image I have for myself about it in relation to the divine is that supposing you were to do an interview with the baby in the womb and say it was a baby that was really sharp and with it. And it said to me, what's going to happen? And you'd say, okay, do you want to know? I'll tell you. In a little while, you're going to be expelled from the womb where you've lived and sheltered. Secondly, you're going to be pushed along a passageway where you'll feel you're being smothered in every moment. Thirdly, you're going to be dropped out into the most garish, searing, transparent light. Fourthly, the cord that connects you to the mother heart will be cut. Fifthly, regardless of how close you ever come to anyone, you will always be on your own. Sixthly, you're going on a journey for which there are no maps. And seventhly, anything can happen to you on the way. The baby would have no choice but to conclude that it was dying when in actual fact it's being born. And perhaps at the other end at death, that it's rebirth into a new rhythm where the old separation mechanisms of space and time no longer cut us off. Meister Eckhart was asked, where does the soul of a person go when the person dies? And he said, no place. Because the old Irish Celtic imagination believed that the dead are our nearest neighbours and that they're all around us. And it's that eternal graciousness that secretly sustains our presence in the world, I believe. Amongst beauty and death, there are flaws. And yet, in your book, the beauty oftentimes comes out of that flaw, mm -hmm. out of that damaged, wounded. In fact, compassion we talked about as one of the the key graces of beauty can't exist That's without right. that person experiencing the wound. That's right. I believe that, uh, like a sentence I love in the philosophical tradition is Nietzsche's sentence where he said, one of the greatest days of my life was the day that I rebaptized all my worst qualities as my best qualities. And I think you see that there is something very precious 
in the flaw that's in a person's life. Now, there are, I've distinguished between flaws. There are some flaws which are totally destructive and cause absolute chaos. But we'll say the normal kind of flaws that are in us are the places that we're not in control. That's the places where there's a bit of old heart that makes us wounded and vulnerability. And there are the places that we can be got at by the impulse to grow within us. And I'd never trust anybody that I'd find too one-sided or too perfect. I love to see the flaw in a person because when I can see the old flaw, I immediately know there's vulnerability. And where there isn't vulnerability, there can be no compassion and no dependence on a person. And it's very interesting in terms of writing. You know, when I go writing poems now, trying to write poetry, it's amazing how the flawed places in you are actually the most fecund sources of possibility and transfiguration and transformation. And that's what the imagination loves. The imagination loves possibility. And one of the things I always think is that we're so obsessed with facts and we never really explore possibilities. And if you look at it in philosophical terms, we'd say every fact that is comes out of a cluster of possibilities. One rises up and becomes the fact. The question that has always fascinated me is what happens to the other possibilities that don't get realized? Or to put it existentially in terms of our lives, like, that each one of us is who we are because of choices we made at certain points. There were six choices, we took number one. The next time there were three, we took number two. But the interesting question for me is, what happens to the lives that you never chose? And I have a suspicion that in the imaginal realm that they travel along with us and that that's the richness of the imagination, that it explores what you'd love to have lived but didn't choose to live. Well, you talk a lot about the journey. That's right. And you say when the sense of destination becomes gracious, Mm -hmm. again, the journey can become the adventure of beauty. Mm -hmm. But a great journey needs plenty of time. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the hardest things as a human being to take into consideration because, you know, a friend once said, you know, if I knew everything was going to turn out all right, the journey wouldn't give me any aggravation. That's right, exactly. But it, it takes so much time to realize it. The patience, how do we as humans transcend that pain of waiting? What Tom Petty say in, in music, the waiting is the, the hardest, hardest thing. part. I, the hardest part. The I hardest love that song. part, yeah. yeah. But I, I think that, uh, that uh, when I was finishing the collection of poems that I have, Connemara Blues, I had these four lines. Uh, actually two lines that I tried to follow and follow with uh, a full poem for about four weeks and I couldn't. But I broke them in the middle and made a short little poem which is called Fluent, which is directly answers your question. And it's fluent and it goes like, I would love to live like a river flows, carried by the surprise of its own unfolding. And you see, I think that's the magic. I think if you can attend to the journey with a quality of mindfulness that recognizes what's unfolding, that then the journey becomes the real kind of adventure. But you need to take your time. Because if you're like, I mean, I always think that nine out of every 10 patients that turn up in a doctor's surgery are suffering from stress-related stuff. And there are tomes of psychology on stress. But a philosophical definition of stress is, stress is a perverted relationship to time, where your time has you as a victim or you've reduced it to routine. And I think time is eternity living dangerously. And if you take your time, it's amazing what will come to meet you. I'll follow that up with, again, and it's kind of funny, I, we spoke earlier and you said, what about poetry? I said, well, John, you know, if you're going to read a minute or two poem, and then I realized 
you're an Irishman. You have to throw in some poetry, <laughs> am I correct? Exactly. But, uh, let me tell you, though, there is a line that you give us here where you say, difficulty becomes invitation. Rather than strive against the grain of our nature, we fall into rhythm with its deepest urgency and passion. And difficulty becoming invitation, I find an important phrase because I think so many of us experience so much pain and difficulty that only when we look at it as an inviting situation can we turn it around. Absolutely. I believe exactly that an awful lot of pain is trapped darkness and that people get fixated into a kind of prison of their own making and they can't release themselves from it. And I always think in that prison wall, if you could even release one pebble to let in a pencil of light, the whole edifice would already be coming down and you'd be becoming free. I think part of um, the characteristic or the quality of maturity or growth is to be able to free yourself from the prisons of your own making. We all have them. There are secret prisons where we're either afraid or something is kind of happening to us, happened to us that holds us in a particular thing. Well, I have a friend who always used to say, and you echo it in the book here, that courage is not absence of fear. People no, think no, that. People think right. I'm courageous. He yeah. has no fear. That's right. It's just the opposite. That's right. Courage is having tremendous fear, yes. but still doing right. what you must do. That's and right. you use the words, and, and I want to play, courage is the spark that can become the flame of hope. Yeah. Once you face that fear and still do what you mm -hmm. must do, it seems that the path, that journey begins to, you, you see more doors opening up. Absolutely. I mean, I think that hope is one of the most amazing qualities. I gave a talk actually at the Religious Education Conference in February here last on a poetics of hope. And a distinction I was making was the distinction between hope and, opt and um, optimism. Optimism is always based on a certain amount of evidence. It must be over the halfway mark so that you can be optimistic. The beauty of hope is that even in the situation of no evidence that things are good, you can have a completely hopeful heart. Not alone that, but I always think that we confuse time with space and we think that the road of time lies dead flat ahead in front of us. But that's not the way it goes because I think expectation creates the future and the quality of expectation you bring to your time shapes it as it comes towards you. And if you believe you're going to be miserable in the future, they'll be lining up to confirm it. Whereas if you have a hopeful disposition, then you'll make openings in your destiny which will invite great creativity from you. John, one more for you, okay? As you so graciously put it, the space between is spirit. Thank you, John, because our time is up. And thank our space you very much, Barry. It was done. a lovely conversation. It is my Bless pleasure. You. And thank you all for joining us. Now, before John leaves, I'd like to leave you with these words by John O'Donoghue from Beauty. The joyful heart sees and reads the world with a sense of freedom and graciousness. Despite all the difficult turns on the road, it never loses sight of the world as a gift. I'm Barry Kibrick. Despite all the difficult turns you may take, if you look around those bends and between those lines and all those spaces, you'll never lose sight of the beautiful. Thank you, John. Thank you very much, Barry. Lovely conversation. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to hear more, please subscribe or become a patron of the show 
at barrykibrick.com to keep it going every week. Thank you.